0: Silicon. We are honoured by his presence. You think? He does. Sprining, prancing Irish Cobblestone Street airs. Jane. Well, I call it very high indeed. Refusing to dance when there are so few gentlemen. Henry. Jane. For all your friends are
1: disagreeable. Where exactly in Ireland does he come from, anyway? Limerick, Miss Austen.
2: I would regard it as a mark of extreme favour if you would stoop to honour me with this next dance.
1: drinking and swearing, but actually this week we're going to have polite conversation in tea. I'm Katya, and I'll be your host today. Um, I unfortunately don't actually have my tea here. Uh, because we are talking about Jane Austen and popular culture. Popular culture I know quite a bit about. Jane Austen, however, I do not. Which means I'm going to go ahead and throw this over to my co-host Hannah.
3: Hey. This was my idea. Um, we always talk about things that are current. But I thought, what if we talked about the 19th century and shoved in current things for once instead of me awkwardly saying well you know this can be traced back to the 19th century
1: and to be fair austen has a lot of like pop culture cachet we have like jane austen novels adapted up up into zombies Pretty much everyone's seen the Kieran Knightley movie. At least I have many times. You know, Uh, it's delightful.
3: Jane, they finally got tired of, well, not really, because there's a new version of Emma coming out soon, but they are now adapting Jane Austen's unfinished novel, Sanditon, into an ITV PBS series that apparently is causing controversy in the UK because it's sexier than people expect Austen to be. There's board games. That I love. People still dress up. And actually, if you don't know much about Austin's history, you probably don't know that she wasn't super popular in her day. Like someone like Sir Walter Scott who did historical novels like Waverly or Ivanhoe, was more popular than Jane Austen. But she's gotten more and more popular as time's gone on. So now we have people who study her academically very seriously, and then people like my mother who do not write Ph.D. dissertations, but would be called like something like Janeites, who nevertheless are very excited. So to talk about Jane Austen with us, I have convinced two of our friends to be on the show, to uh, have not been on before, Carolyn and Bridget. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, so, Bridget, uh, do you want to tell everyone what you do? Sure.
2: Um, So I am a PhD student in English at the University of North Carolina, and I study 18th century British literature. Um, my dissertation is about carriage accidents an 18th century fiction. Uh, very exciting. Um, and there are a few of those in Austen's novels. Um, they're not too many, surprisingly. Um, but I do have a chapter about Austen um, and kind of driving culture in the early 19th century and the transition from. Carriages that would be driven by a servant or a coachman of some sort to when people started driving their own carriages and the kinds of risks and accidents that that all entails. Um so yeah, I have very In, in, in case bit. you think
1: that studying carriage collisions is not a thing that relates to popular culture, you would be wrong because we use this regularly in our D and D campaign. It is true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. Oh, cool. Carolyn. Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn, I'm a PhD candidate in the English department at Duke. Uh, I'm actually an Americanist, so um, I know nothing about uh, the British uh, 19th century, or very little. Welcome Um, to the club! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's kind of nice to see that uh, we have a... But I mean, it does speak to Austin's relevance that we have two Americanists on here. um, And that that I got invited because um, Austin is actually in the title of the class that I'm currently teaching. The class I'm teaching is called uh, The Economics of Romance from Austin to Tinder. Oddly, I think that the Austin part drew probably just as many people to the class as Tinder. Um, not really sure about why. Maybe you I feel, guys like undergrads are out. Weirded
1: out. I feel like undergrads are weirded out by the fact that their teachers know what Tinder is. I feel like maybe mm-hmm. Tinder is... Do the young ends use the, twi- the Tinder? I don't want to know. I really don't want to know what my students do on the internet.
0: I... I mean, this is just uh, speculation, obviously, but, um, you know, they didn't rebel at the fact that um, basically we just had one session on the contemporary moment and dating apps and that kind of stuff. And then immediately plunged into, well, actually, first we went to the 17th century and John Locke, um, but then we moved on to Austin. So they were pretty okay with my move to just be like, yeah, let's, you know, briefly look at Tinder and then go back a couple centuries and look at the dynamics of um, the pretender romantic choice.
1: Great. So, um, Hannah, we talked a little bit on the blog sort of about speculating why Austin has this sort of like ongoing pop culture cachet. I brought it up as sort of like it's both a classic, but also an example of sort of like pop culture chiclet, um, in the sense of like easy to read, fun to read, deals with women's issues and things like that. Um, but you want to talk more about sort of like what brought you to this topic?
3: Yeah. So, uh, I, I clearly write my dissertation on 19th century novels and actually Jane Austen is a weird case because I think as Bridget, uh, in particular can attest to a lot of people like to claim Austin, people who study the 19th century, people who are like solely like romanticists in the romantic period, people who do the 18th century, uh, people who do novel studies, except apparently people who study literature and economics, um, et cetera, et cetera, and on top of that, it, it is a draw to students to have them in the classroom, and it's just a, you know, a box office and viewer draw. I mean, there there is a reason why they keep remaking Emma into a ton of movies and miniseries series any chance they get instead of doing something like Evelina, which if you don't know what that is, you I have no idea what that is. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a right. very, yeah, it's fantastic. It's a lot like Jane Austen. It's a pre-Jane Austen novel uh, by Fanny Burney and you Austin's
1: know who that is novelist i i only know who fanny bernie is because bridget has mentioned this name to me before I've never <laughs> read
3: um you know i just think there's something about jane austen's works that really still speaks to us today even though times have changed quite a bit um but i i'd like to hear um from our guests, like what they think about Jane Austen, especially since Carolyn, you, you're teaching Jane Austen, not in a 19th century or 18th century class, but in a class that spans across time. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I think Austen is kind of prefigures a way that, um, the way in which capitalism and the notion of making romantic choices come together at some point. So I think, What's really interesting about Carolyn, the way that you're teaching
1: it, is so you're teaching Austin as like an example of economics. So, like, what exactly is useful about Austin for talking about economics in in a way that's meaningful to us now?
0: Well, one way in which I think um, Austin is very much tied up with economics, is that her characters, the love aspect in Austin is pretty anemic, right? I mean, I I don't know. Yes, thank you. I appreciate
3: that. Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, People don't love very much i mean um i taught emma in this class and it's not like emma is really it doesn't even feel like she's deeply in love with mr knightley it's just kind of when she says yes to his marriage proposal there's no yes there's just uh you know kind of free and direct discourse and it just says she said what a lady ought to say that's interesting Which I think is a, I think that's a, um, that's a very Austin way of saying she agreed to marry him because she's supposed to, because she's supposed to. And, um, there's a weird, so in a way, the marriages uh, in, in Emma, but also in other Austen novels are very instrumental, right? In um, Emma, it's all about uh, keeping the society of Highbury intact or basically repairing it. One of my students pointed out that um, all the relationships, uh, all the parent relationships are kind of broken, right? Mm-hmm. Emma's mom is dead, um, uh, Mr. Knightley, the owner of Donwell is not, uh, is not married. Um, there are some people in the village that need to be taken care of by the wealthier families though, like, uh, Ms. Bates, um, and Mrs. Bates. And, uh, it's really important to the functioning of this society that, that these, um, relationships are restored and that they're lasting, that there's a kind of, uh, that there's an heir who can take care of this. Right. Mm-hmm. um and so the marriages and emma in the end just end up end up fixing the problem
1: so what i'm hearing is kind of like the like a lot of the economic relationships and i think it was like the familiar relationships that are tied up with them like I mean, they don't sound all that different from a lot of things that people experience now. Like we might not have the same, like, you know, limitations in terms of like what women can do in their careers. Or I mean, for us, that just didn't, wasn't the thing. Um, where like marriage was the only way to sort of like sustain yourself. But I mean, all of this is like the idea that like a marriage is simultaneously like an economic contract as well as like a familial one and a personal one is like, I guess like, sounds very like familiar to me
0: yeah and i think um Austin awesome has this tendency to to fuse something that looks like a semblance of passionate love with uh, something very functional for society. Yeah, I, I, um, it's I think because I do think there must be something about the way that uh, love and desire is written in Austin that speaks to people today, even though it does at the same time seem so anemic.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah, Hannah, what was your Oh, thought? I was going to say, like, I mean, even persuasion, which I think we could say might be the most passionate of the romances in Austin. Uh, which <laughs> Would you say it's the most
1: persuasive? Oh,
3: <laughs> um, because if you don't know the story, um, Anne Elliott was engaged to. Uh, captain Wentworth and then she broke off her engagement at the pressure of her friends and family because he was just in the Navy and had no connections and she was from a like, family with a title and then years pass and he comes back wealthy and now a captain and her family has fallen on hard times because her father is an idiot and <laughs> she's always loved him and he's always loved her except he's really mad at her because she left him. And I mean I, fair. Yeah. Fair. So to be fair, the way that Austin writes the novel, and this is important, and uh I argued with a mansplainer about this at a conference. Um the way <laughs> that Austin writes the novel, Anna was right to reject him the first time around because he was a risky investment in all the ways mm-hmm. that worried, not not just because he was poor, but all the ways that concerned Austin herself and her politics. So He has to become a different kind of man with judgment in place to, like, maintain a certain kind of English society before he and Anne can get married. And then they finally do. But there's, like, a big emphasis on, like, judgment character taste throughout all of Austen's novels. I mean, there's a reason why Elizabeth... So, like, he has to grow up first. there's a reason why Elizabeth goes to Pemberley, looks at Darcy's house, and realizes that the house reflects the man. It's not just because she's a gold digger. It's because there's something deeper there. I mean, Bridget, do you think that Austin's romantic? (laughs) Am I just a cynic? No, I do not think she's romantic at all. Um,
2: I actually, so you know how Facebook has that feature where it shows you like things that you posted on this day and whatever year. So ironically, uh, nine years ago today, um, I posted the following on Facebook. And I think that this uh, shows kind of my relationship with Austin um, from my, my younger days. So I posted, I thought that maybe after not having read any Austen since freshman year, I could look at her critically and perhaps hate her a little less. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only 30 some pages into Emma and I am more upset and taking more vehement, barely legible margin notes than I have in a very, very long time. (laughs)
1: So, so, so this is really this is really fascinating to me because I remember reading Austin as like a twelve year old and like I don't think I thought of it as super romantic, but I think I thought about it as romantic in sort of like a nerd girl way uh that like it was both romantic but like pragmatic, like the girl doesn't go insane as in a lot of things so like I'm curious that that the, the people that like study this are sort of like the opposite camp so like say, say more Bridget so when I
2: was young, I mean, I think I tended to have a more, like, romantic view of, like, the Brontes and that kind of, you know, whole situation with the Heathcliffs and the Mr. Rochesters, but all the toxic men in literature I thought were fascinating. Um, But I do think that like part of it for me was that there was something so unfeeling about the characters in Austen's novels and that their relationships were so kind of transactional. Um, And I think that I had a hard time kind of as somebody who really enjoyed 19th century literature, perhaps a bit uncritically (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. and kind of more for these sort of like tumultuous romance plots I had gotten used to Mm -hmm. that I really could not get on board with Austin's romances especially I think because of the way that she's sort of held up in you know popular culture in our kind of contemporary moment as this like super romantic writer um, which didn't really square with my experiences of reading her. And then on the other side, this, I think, Facebook post kind of comes out of me being an undergrad who studied a lot of 18th century novels, who... Felt like Austin just didn't quite fit in in either the 18th or the 19th century model that I was familiar with. Um, and I think that what I was interested in in the 18th century novel was the way that kind of novels reveal something about their craft um, and about how messy the process of writing a novel was. And I think that mm. Austen's novels are so meticulous and so well-crafted. That there was always just this level of like I don't know. Like, It seems stale. Yeah. This is, I mean, this,
3: this is familiar
1: to me. This is the reason why I dislike a lot of Henry James, which I'm sure there's some yeah. people listening that are just gonna their heads are gonna explode.
0: Um, I mean, I guess why, why is why is it that people go so easily to bashing because, Henry James? I fucking because he's the worst. Like,
1: Henry James. Well, okay, like. I so I'm I don't some, like him
0: politically, but I think his, his writing is just so revelatory. boring. Sorry.
1: I guess <laughs> yeah. This is another a topic, but like I I I have a chapter on Henry James, and like while I appreciate him academically, I find him interesting. His novels are not what I want to curl up with in an evening, like with my cup of tea. They're just
3: <laughs> no,
0: no. Yeah, no, although no, I think, I, in some think ways, I think this is maybe how academia has uh, just. You know, 10 years in academia just have changed me, but I actually am at the point where I do curl up and, uh, <laughs> and read <greet laughs> the wings of the dove. I mean,
3: actually, too. So, to I'm point, a, go ahead, I'm,
0: Katia. So, I'm curious
1: about, like, because I think, because Hannah used said at the top of the show that, like, she wasn't that popular, like, in her own time. And I'm kind of wondering if, like, what Bridget is talking about is maybe why. <laughs> like she's breaking like she's stepping away from what's like expected in a way that sounds like at least from what carolyn was talking about it sounds like it's sort of like exposing maybe some of the more like economic motivate motivations of things that like both feel in conflict with like the sort of tumultuous romances of like earlier novels and maybe like a part of ourselves we don't really want to acknowledge i don't know how like odd that would have been in the
0: 19th century though. Um, yeah, I actually, okay, this is great because I actually had a thought about, um, something that Bridget, Bridget said, which is, um, she does feel so unromantic and unfeeling in a way compared to the other 19th century novels. And, um, I just started connecting that kind of to our contemporary moment and these narratives around, um, well, something that you, like, people call, like, I don't know, neoliberal subjectivity or something like that, which is, uh, this, narrative that um, today, at least discursively, we are figured a lot more as economic actors than we were before. Mm, The notion Mm. that we're these like human capital accumulating, like entrepreneurs of ourselves. Yeah, it's like the image of, like, the worker as robots. Not just robot, more like investor in the self. Mm, okay. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a line of argument that comes out of, um, most famously, uh, Wendy Brown. Um, but others have argued, like, similar um, things. I'm kind of critical um, towards that argument. I think, frankly, it's one that works best for... Um, university professors, uh, and maybe, maybe not so much for someone uh, who works several, uh, jobs and, uh, you know, isn't thinking about whether or not, uh, going, I don't know, whether or not reading a book is going to enhance their human capital. Um, right. but I do think it's still a, a sentiment to be taken seriously. This notion that we constantly make decisions Or any decision we make goes into making us, uh, so we think about future more higher earning, uh, workers, right? And I think the thing about Austin is it infuses precise. It, ha, it has exactly that logic right it has exactly the logic of we need to make the right economic decisions uh, in order for society to work and so on but she individualizes it individualizes it and she she does imbue it with at least some semblance of romantic love because if it wasn't if that semblance of romantic love wasn't there, people wouldn't love her so much today. So it's a weird kind of making the economics of today or like a certain sentiment about our economic in today uh, seem slightly less calculating and cold and unfeeling.
1: Right. So you, in some ways she's writing a romance novel that is more indicative of how we think of relationships in 2019 than it might have, you know, in her own time. I mean, like this is is
3: like a thing that happens a lot when at least I have taught Austin or have heard other people talk about their experiences teaching Austin, especially in 18th, 19th century literature, students will make a lot of comparisons to Austin with their own lives. My sister, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to remind everyone, my sister and I grew up in Mississippi and attended college there. My sister attended a school where there was a saying that went around ring before spring, which if you're thinking, does that mean that they wanted to be engaged by the, Spring of their senior year. Yes, you are correct. That was the idea. And there, w- there were people who definitely were like weighing like economics and class status and so on and so forth, much like an Austin novel. So, my sister, who does not like Jane Austen and has not finished Prime Prejudice, uh, has given me a long, extended like talk about why there is a lot of similarities between. 2019 Mississippi and early 1800s England in the landed gentry world.
0: No, I I think think the landed gentry world is also like so weird, right? Because it's so out of our time. It's even kind of out of its own time because it's, uh, the moment of urbanization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in some ways it's responding to that, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Katya. It's also,
1: well, I mean, just to talk, like what you just said, I mean, I think it's interesting also, like, I, I would be curious, um, to talk about like, what, like the difference, the way that the difference between like how Austin is received in the United States versus England, like in a contemporary sense, because like, I think that there's an interesting, um, And this has been documented across like particularly 20 and 21st century America, but in multiple ways, especially, I mean, I even think like the American obsession with like royal weddings, like there is this sort of like weird attraction from like a certain segment of the like American popular audience that finds the idea of the landed gentry like really romantic. I think because it was something that I mean, our closest really version of that was sort of like the like the New York socialite. And, like, there's divisions between, like, old money and new money, but it's a very different kind of community, and they produced very different kind of novels. Like, I'm thinking, like, the difference between an Austin novel and a Gatsby novel is not just time. It's also that there's, like, an entirely different economic structure and operation. And mm-hmm. even though some of the things, some of the things are familiar, but other things are very not. I'm even thinking, like, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example, but there's a lot of novels about, like, where, when American socialites go to England and sort of interact with the land of gentry, and it's, like, a very weird um culture I mean, clash even take the uh, example
3: of down abbey's big main marriage mm-hmm. like robert marries right. the american heiress and i mean it's admittedly more trollopey than Austin and it's a 21st century thing but importantly trollopey in the sense of the author not in the sense of the yes. adjective. yeah point.
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> <voice. laughs> Just for the non-nineteenth-century <laughs> yeah. people, because I occasionally get confused with this. <laughs> down
3: Abbey, like especially if you've seen the movie, is just basically a two-hour summary of go monarchy, go aristocracy. Let's keep the landed gentry going into the modern world. You can do it if you have enough heart, because you are a lady. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I do think um, there is some, you know, escapism that is mm-hmm. um, that we see in the popularity of both Down Abbey and um, and. Austin novels. Um, But in order for something to work as an escapist kind of um, piece of fiction, I think you need, uh, you need enough to connect to from your contemporary moment.
3: Mm -hmm. I
0: wouldn't know, I I can't really, I don't really know what that is in Downton Abbey because I've, I've seen some of it, but Well, actually, one moment in Downton Abbey where I really connected to it was that um, they had the same kind of electric fuses that I had in my very, very old apartment in Berlin. And I was like, oh, look, (laughs) I have a connection. Um, But uh, yeah, overall, I think I I do think that the economics of it is uh, to some degree one one node of connection
2: yeah um i also think that there's something to the fact that the majority of austin's heroines are not initially members of the landed gentry right they are people who are in the sort of like middle class right that's developing during this Mm -hmm. period and I think that it's hard to recognize today as contemporary readers, the position that they're in, right? Because they still have servants. They still, you know, have like the things, the trappings of what we today would see as this sort of aspirational upper-class life. Um, But for many of the characters in her novels, they don't have very much, right? They're Mm -hmm. kind of living on these very, very small incomes. and. It's really a necessity for these women who are in this weird station, right? They are part of families who are not used to women having to work. And so therefore, their only option is to marry up. And so I think that it's something that's, I think, really easily forgotten when we look back at Austin, because we see these like lavish balls and stuff like that that are you know represented in the film versions and all mm-hmm. of that um but for I
1: mean, i'm even thinking of like i mean even even the scene in i mean i'm, I'm also thinking more of the movie because i haven't read the book in some time but mm. i mean in austin like the fact that they comment like she lives on a farm rather than like an estate exactly um yeah. and like even though she's probably not like laboring on the farm in a real way there's still like the idea of like she's walking through the like the, might, the
3: in a way that Elizabeth like it from prime prejudice <laughs> yeah of course yes, yes. Who
2: else is? And the Bennetts, right? Like, I mean, this is something that I pay attention to because I study carriages, but um, the Bennett's they have five daughters, yes. is that right? Five? Yes. five uh, yeah. Yeah. They have all these, you know, young women who are of marriageable age and they don't have their own carriage. They have a carriage that the family owns, but it is also used for farm purposes, right? And so, like, that's indicative. Oh, so that's why, because I remember
1: there's this scene where basically, I think, I forget which one, I think it's one of the younger girls, like, has to ask her father if she can use the carriage. I I thought that that was like a... I thought she was asking for parental permission to go out, but she was literally being like, do we need it on the farm that's today? Why I,
3: that's why she's yeah. the horse. Oh, and wow. also her mother's a schemer. Mm-hmm. And like, actually uh, in that 2005 version, I assume the one that you're referencing, uh, Joe Wright actually talked about wanting to emphasize that it wasn't just all ball gowns and like glittering majesty or whatever. And mm-hmm. he wanted to talk more about like the day-to-day lives <clears throat> of the Bennetts and how that differed from the Darcy's um but you know like
1: also can we all can we all agree that darcy is overrated and kind I,
3: of an he's, asshole? he's not the worst okay, because great. there are a lot of others who are worse but he's not great oh no he's not the word i'm <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, I'm on a later episode we're going to probably talk about the jane Austen uh, card game but i am 100 percent in the camp of colonel fitzwilliam in that
3: game as long as you have money anyway. it would not be fun to marry yeah. if
1: right i know i know see it's actually it's a really great example it's like well and uh like i think i can't remember if it was bridget or carolyn you said this i mean i think it's interesting that like talking about like oh yep, you no know bridget because you're talking about they like, they have to marry up mm-hmm. which is also really interesting because it makes it like kind of like a weird meritocracy mm-hmm. in that the women i mean i think this is part of um like even just thinking about like uh, in Pride and Prejudice, like who gets what marriages is, mm-hmm. is sort of like the two sisters who everyone likes and like aren't basically childish, ill behaved, you know, pain in the ass. Basically, like the that it says like that somehow like the marriage market becomes a kind of a meritocracy, and that the well behaved women, whatever that means, get the marry the fancy dudes, whereas the other women don't, and, and then also. I think also importantly, like, both, uh, like, uh, Elizabeth, and I'm forgetting the name of the oldest sister, Jane, Jane, thank you, uh, like, they both also have, like, a romantic relationship with the people that they marry, where that's not always, like, as clear, I feel like, um, with the other sisters.
3: Yes, there's definitely a, um, kind of moral-ish thing with a lot of the marriages. Actually, in fact... Fun story. Uh, Whenever I was given a Christian uh, growing up like wait until marriage kind of book, they use sense and sensibility to illustrate why we should like conduct ourselves like ladies saying that Eleanor like holds in her feelings and she doesn't flirt with boys too much and she marries the good guy. And Marianne is abandoned by Willoughby. I mean, obviously, if you know Austin, you you know that eventually Marianne <laughs> marries Colonel Brandon, and that's Alan Rickman in the Ang Lee version. So I guess she did all right.
1: But the, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> <with> Alan Rickman. <laughs> but
3: I mean, I it I, what you like. I, I, I don't snagy. see the appeal of no. Alan Rickman. But then Josh gave me like this horrible look that made me look like I was a monster. So I guess there's something there. <laughs> I. But didn't Colonel brandon also have a No, he. Child? People think it is. Oh, he. Was yeah, the girl he loved. Who reminded him is. of Marianne? Who Willoughby got right, that right. daughter pregnant and left Marianne. Oh, yeah. I forgot it was Willoughby. Oh, all these chains of yep. connection. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, spoiler alert! Sorry,
0: guys. Yep. Uh, uh, <laughs> can i can i um, ask, uh can i go back to something uh katya yeah so totally just, just ask um more generally what do you what do you guys in general think about the possibilities of upward mobility in austin do you think because i do think there's like a it's a very um ambiguous well, picture in, in a, it's certainly me.
3: very conservative um
0: <laughs>
3: but then, but then yeah.
0: there's jane Fairfax, well,
3: who marries who marries but, up but the, on the other hand <laughs> Does she, I mean, she marries up in position, but she has, yeah. Finan- financially, she yeah, marries but up. Like, but like, is going to be the moral. For
1: the non-Austin people, can you yeah. explain why she's marrying up but not
0: so, yeah, the other um, same- thing? So uh, Jane Fairfax is actually, the the plot of Jane Fairfax and Emma has kind of been called the, the shadow novel in mm-hmm. Emma. Um, okay. Because uh, Jane is the uh, niece have uh the very poor basis. so she really doesn't have anything and she was orphaned and all that stuff but um uh she was taken in by a wealthy family um, who gave her education with the idea that she would become a governess at some point in emma's world that's pretty terrible because i mean she has to work for a living um
3: like,
1: terrible, like, terrible
0: overall, or terrible specifically,
1: like, to the character of Emma? No,
3: like, 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 Jane Fairfax, I mean, Emma would never be a governess because of her position as okay. an heiress to Harfield but, uh, Jane Fairfax actually compares the governess trade to the slave trade. Uh, Jane herself? So that's what, yeah, Jane. Oh, okay, I forget yeah, like, so to, like
0: Jane doesn't actually get to talk a lot in the novel. Mm. Yeah, that's like
3: one of the, her most memorable lines because she like. I can, I can you help help that's that's her, that. my cat. She's she has she uh. has thoughts about Austin. <laughs> right. So, like, to Jane Fairfax, there is a mar- like a trade of bodies of women that to her is comparable to the slave trade, and if all of you are horrified, then yes, obviously, but. But also, the point is that to be I'm,
0: horrified of governesses, the the life of a governess right. mm-hmm.
3: um, well, yes. which
1: and I can well, the comparison is hyperbolic. I can kind of understand like it it like the life of the government based governess would presumably imply that like. You kind of fucked up getting
0: married. Well, that's the next. Oh, step. I mean, it's kind of the the uh, the weird thing in Emma is like uh, everyone's marriage prospects are discussed and thought of, thought about all the time, except Jane Fairfax's, um, which then ends up uh, with like the surprise twist at the end, which is Jane Fairfax uh, Jane Fairfax is going to marry Frank Churchill, who actually has a quite considerable um, fortune. And um I feel like there's a butt coming. He's an idiot. Okay, there's the butt. He's an idiot,
3: <laughs> and he's a he could. He's basically a rake without being a rake, um, in the sense that he doesn't actually sexually seduce anyone, but he charms everyone. Um, so basically, so everyone thinks he's way better than he actually he, is.
1: Just so I'm following. Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, like he literally like seduces everyone in the novel well, into liking I mean, Hannah, him. Except Mr. Knightley like, believes that he's like trying to marry her for a while. Yeah, and he makes her yeah. believe, yeah, that he would yeah. potentially. Right. I mean, the reason why I think, and uh, feel free to disagree, guys, that um, the reason why people like Jane Fairfax can marry people like Frank Churchill is because Jane Fairfax has sense and judgment and good character, capable of guiding Frank to make better decisions. Whereas someone like Harriet Smith, who is like the like third main female character in Emma doesn't have any sense at all and is also poor and is also an a bastard what jane austen calls natural daughter of a merchant and emma's horrified to learn this fact later on because the novel's full of classism
2: i do think to some extent there is like in austin this fantasy of upward mobility right like that And I I do think it's inherently connected with character, right? That like Mm -hmm. if you have the right sort of personality and character traits that you cultivate in yourself, then you can be marriageable to somebody who can like bring you out of your station. And I think one of the things that's super interesting about that too is that like marrying up in Austen's novels tends to be marrying like super up. Like, because mm. you marry, if you're marrying up, you're marrying a man who doesn't need your income, whatever, you know, money that the woman would come with. Um, so in the case of Darcy or whatever, right, where he doesn't. I'm need- going
1: gonna, gonna to ask a dumb question. So women's income is basically coming from like money sitting in a bank accruing interest. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That okay. Means, right. But it comes from capital, not from yes labor. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, like like Emma's fortune, like quote, comes from other sources and uh, like the estate. So like it could be like investments in like colonial Mm -hmm. ventures abroad. We just don't okay, got it. Yeah, and often it's not
2: super clear, Um, and sometimes it's like inheritances after you know a male figure in the family dies, and so like money is set aside for people's income in the future, and so they'll get you know however many pounds a year.
0: also, there was, I mean, the Bank of England already existed, so, um, you know, just, okay. there were, um, pretty, I mean, usually people, uh, estimate uh, interest to be like five to have been like around five percent so you know um depending on what fortune what the amount of money is that you have in the bank you'd get your income of i don't know 1500 or something a year and okay. and there was also like um trading on like government bond trading um to finance uh the napoleonic wars for example
1: mm-hmm. this was just something that was never clear to me in an austin novel so Anyway,
3: I think she she, she purposely mm-hmm. obscures it. So if you're confused as a casual reader in the present day, like that's not a fault of yours. I mean,
1: you know, insofar as not understanding 19th century literature is a fault. But uh, <laughs> so so anyway, Bridget, sorry to interrupt, but you were saying that they marry like super up so that basically their income is inconsequential.
2: Right, right. Well, in, in a lot of these instances that we see of, you know, yeah, the the Bennett sisters marrying Darcy and Bingley, et cetera. are um, like literally the
1: most wealthy people in that part of the country.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so there's no need for them to produce some sort of income for their husbands. And so therefore, like, they can marry out of love. And so I think that's where the sort of like romantic element comes into play is when you have these really stark, you know, economic distinctions between the two people who end up marrying is where, you know, love actually does manage to overcome their social distances or whatever. Um, And so I do think that that's part of the fantasy in her novels.
1: It's also, I mean, I'm just thinking like now, like because I think there is this, like, because this is this happens in in the United States, and I don't know if this is true of England as well. So maybe you can like correct me if I'm wrong, but um, like there is this always like this mythology that somehow like I mean, in this case, we're not coming from we're talking about coming from like the British middle class rather than anything sort of like the working poor or something like that, right? But there is this sort of idea that the lower down on the like economic chain you go, there's sort of like this character building aspect or you're like a better person than you would be wealthy would be as a wealthy person. And while that doesn't seem to apply to the men necessarily, it does seem at least for my casual reading to apply to a lot of the women because like a lot of the wealthy women are either I'm thinking of Bingley's sister, a snot Carolyn, Carolyn. no offense, Carolyn, uh, yeah and or they're sort of like
3: uh kind of just boring also they're vulgar like lady catherine Mm, berg right um, and so there's this this idea of like wealthy women
1: maybe maybe because they don't have to go through the rigors of the marriage market in quite the same way are somehow worse people for it well
3: she's she's definitely also just critiquing even as she writes and like thinks of ways to preserve the landed gentry in a Time of great economic change. She's also critiquing them uh, mm-hmm. because if you look at characters like Lady Catherine or Sir Walter Elliot from Persuasion, they are people with titles, mm-hmm. um, and they are too caught up in a very old, in an even older system than the system on which, like Mister Darcy, say, is operating on. And they are more interested in like the trappings of wealth and showing their position, and so on and so forth rather, and even status to a degree, even though status is important in Austin, than, you know, being good caretakers. Uh, because Mr. Darcy, if you go to Pemberley, is talked up by the servants. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the few times that Austin really focuses on the servants to talk up him. And But that shows his character because he cares for more than himself and self-enrichment and... Yeah, it's sort of like... ...weaving his stats around yeah, it's like the idea if
1: you're not nice to the waiter, then you're a horrible person.
3: Yes, and and mm-hmm. that is true generally speaking
1: although darcy's still an, awesome. a, an asshole but you
3: know. i i think honestly more he's not the I worst mean he is, but he's more, not great more, more, more. oh no he i think he i think more than anthony he is the most socially awkward person mm-hmm. ever um but i again not saying i want to marry mr darcy Arnold, sometimes i don't even want to marry mr darcy Even to win the game and marry Mister Darcy, I don't always want to marry Mister Darcy.
1: We have an alternate. We have an alternate way of playing that game where we decide that the being the spinster at the end is actually winning.
0: Well, I mean, uh, the old maid um, card has uh, the option that um, if if you get like uh, if you get a A six six, on the die, you basically become Austin. So it's like the. It's kind of among the best outcomes, right? Um, I think the the best best outcome in the game is if you marry the exact right suitor for you. Um, that's like the highest point, um, the highest um, like the, the biggest amount of the highest number of points that you can get. Um, but I think it's um, followed closely by the option of becoming an alt mate and writing a famous novel. Right,
1: because Austin never got married, right? Yes, right.
3: So, right. like... Yeah, like, there's actually a whole movie about it with Anne Hathaway. Very good, but uh, <laughs> That is not
1: good. Because I know that there was, like, the... the I have i don't know if this is true, but, like, the the idea that, like, Pride and Prejudice is supposed to be the story of, like like, her own romance that she would imagine for herself, even though it's not what she actually either got or maybe even wanted in her real life.
3: It's debated about whether or not it's based on, or like parts of it are based on like a real life thing that she had with someone, which is chronicled in that uh, Anne Hathaway movie called Becoming Mm -hmm. Jane in really uh, overblown terms. Uh, But, you know, I, I think, uh, it's it's interesting that she wrote all these novels and never got married. I think that it has a lot to do with what we've been talking about this time of like that England between the 18th and 19th centuries was under great economic mm. change. Uh, you know the the Napoleonic War was happening, and you know people make fun of Jane Austen's novels for being the novels about the Napoleonic War that ignore the Napoleonic mm-hmm.
0: War. Well, at least um, in the financing.
3: yeah i mean you know she she really just like spends all of persuasion trying to like make the navy more (laughs) uh, domestic virtues over you know the plundering they were doing right the navy the navy is there to
1: be your boyfriend not actually do the naval things
0: can you explain what you mean by that? The Navy being the boyfriend. Well, like because like a lot of
1: at least from, like my experience of reading novels, it's like the Navy is there as a convenient source of marriageable young men for like women to fawn over
3: <laughs> rather than
1: like we're actually going to talk about what they're doing there or like what like the British military, the British Navy is doing at that point in history. <laughs> But anyway, Hannah,
3: you were saying? Oh, so so we've talked about romance a lot, but in talking about romance, we've touched on a lot of other concerns that shaped all of the English social order, be it law or economic issues or just, like, you know, social hierarchy. So, like, uh, I think the obvious reason Jane Austen gets categorized as chiclet is because it's about women and people think of them as romantic, even though we've just spent the past <laughs> 30 minutes talking about exactly why they aren't. So, and I, what, why, what is it about Austen that should make her appealing to people who aren't just, you know, stereotyped as women needing a romantic fantasy set in a different time period?
1: I think part of it is it's class. It's considered classic literature.
3: Like I think that it has like
1: the, I mean, speaking from a pop culture perspective rather than like a 19th centuryist perspective is like, I think that Austin both has the sort of like, I don't want to call it a pulp novel, but like that kind of pulp appeal of like of the romance and this kind of wishful thinking that you get with romances but it's also has cultural capital in a way that the most that the average romance doesn't have like i'm i'm also specifically thinking of like it's it's a book that you wouldn't be embarrassed to read on the subway <laughs> which i know a lot of people are embarrassed to read romance novels on the subway
3: um I mean, and i think yeah to to you. Yeah, yeah go ahead to your point, I mean, whenever people started thinking academically in the 20th century about like the English canon and novel studies, people like F.R. Levis, who wrote a book called The Great Tradition, was like, all right, English literature begins, like the best, the height of it, realism begins with Jane Austen. Mm. And then forget, forget Bronte, forget mm-hmm. Dickens, forget Trollope. What we really need to focus on is Henry James and George Eliot. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, Middlemarch by George Eliot is considered the greatest novel in the English language by a lot of people, even though as pop culture focused people probably only I have read it because it's super long and not in anyone else's field. (laughs) Uh, And I I would describe it as a more boring, longer Jane Austen. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, George Eliot.
1: I don't don't think any of our listeners are offended about that. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I do think there
2: is an extent to which the sort of like critical appreciation of Austen among academic circles did widen her popularity where because mm-hmm. like, you mentioned Leavis but also like Ian Watt wrote you know his rise of the novel Um, that's thinking about kind of the development of the novel in the 18th century and Austen is the only female novelist he includes in his study um, and as we know uh, from like our 18th century reading group etc th- most of the novelists super active in the 18th century were women um, and novels were being written by women for women to read novel reading was considered a very sort of feminine endeavor um, and I think that one of the things that Austin does is and and what makes her Super unique. And this is kind of what I was speaking to earlier when thinking about my own reaction to her, like as an undergrad, is that I think she picks up on what's successful about the novels that she's been reading and manages to kind of put them into like a very compact, easy to read kind of little package. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that I see with contemporary readers of Austin. Um, who are not necessarily academics, but who, you know, really enjoy romance novels or just any sort of, you know, capital L literature, Um, is that, I mean, fundamentally, her novels are easy to read. And they're fun to read. Yeah. We've yet to talk about how funny they are. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I think that they are just like, good novels in the sense of like the craft of novel writing. Um and there's something to that I think that is important to to look at um
1: or to I think it's also why they've aged so well. Mm-hmm. Like and I think even in a way that I, I don't think it's just that they're well written novels because I can think of I mean actually so not to go back to Henry James but also go back to Henry James. Henry James <laughs> Like both of them are from a craft perspective, well crafted. Mm-hmm. Like they both produce well crafted novels, mm-hmm. but they're of a very different style. Because, like, I think there's, a, I mean, there's a reason that Henry James is not popular among sort of like the you know the non-academic reading public because he's dense as hell mm-hmm. and confusing, and a lot of the references that James makes, unless you're an academic, aren't they're like kind of opaque. Mm-hmm. Whereas Austin, like, I mean, I remember reading Austin in middle school, and like, Austin, like, there would be a few references I wouldn't get, or like something like that, that like I need to look up the footnotes. But overall, stylistically, to me, it read very much actually like a 20th century novel. It doesn't read like it doesn't read as a dated piece mm-hmm. of literature. um It's a very modern, it's stylistically, it's very modern.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I think um, I I also like the idea of thinking Austin in comparison to James's writing style, because with James, it's like every word, every comma, every, you know, syllable has like more than one meaning. Right. Right. and uh that's why you know you can uh you can write uh, whole papers just on one sentence in <laughs> uh in in James and at the same time it makes him it makes it very difficult to teach him, uh, you know, like, because you need to just spend so much time on him. And with Austin, Mm -hmm. I think the difference is, so, so James makes you think on the level of language. Austin makes you think on the level of interactions. I feel like her meaning um, is, there's a lot in these novels. There's a lot in these interactions, but it's um, conveyed very uh, but fairly simply and i mean that in a good way um yeah through dialogue but also i for example her free and direct discourse is so easy to spot it's so clear um whom something is focalized through at any mm-hmm. given point in the novel i think and that's that's also a very useful thing to teach uh students certain like about certain rhetorical devices
3: i mean most of us have taught Jane Austen or have been in a class where Jane Austen has taught, if not all of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like just because a novel features a female protagonist or multiple female protagonists, like and Sensibility*, does not mean they have nothing to say to anyone else. Uh, oh, absolutely. So you can get a, like, you can get a lot out of them. In fact, uh, Carolyn, you have a lot of like students in your class who like, at least showed up for a game night we did, uh, where they were all like guys and they were very into playing Mary and Mr. Darcy and learning more about the 19th century. Uh,
0: yeah, we did a thing. Um, I mean, I know that you've incorporate that, uh, incorporated this into your class. For me, it wasn't exactly that I made it part of the um, schedule. I was just like in the first session, I was like, hey, my friend Hannah has told me about this game. Are you guys into board games. If you guys want to come, we can just do like an you know, was like an additional thing, uh nothing mandated. People could just show up and um and there were strawberries. Um and Austin shaped cookies. Yeah, I I own an I own
3: an Austin shaped cookie cutter of course there's you do
0: so much awesome stuff I do have to say it doesn't work very well because um, <laughs> because you know cookies when you put them in the oven like get oh, bigger
3: I should have told <laughs> you so it's an awesome blob I should have told you this uh, there's a very specific dough recipe you have to use to get the shape right
0: <laughs> you should have to, indeed you should have told me that um, um, anyways, it's it looked, it looked probably it disgusting, disgusting.
3: The, the cookies
0: ended up looking more like um, aliens but um, that's okay uh, <laughs> sorry to go back <laughs> to our yeah so about uh, half the students showed up to the game night, which was really fun. And um, this was also, you know, uh, pretty evenly distributed in terms of uh, genders, I think. Um, and I, I, what's your question about that? <laughs> well, I guess I
1: like this is just say, just make an observation. I think one of the things about Austin is that and actually this maybe goes back to some of the observations, Carolyn you made at the beginning of the episode about like sort of the economic connection is it makes the marriage market and sort of a lot of the weird things that women sort of had to deal with at that time legible without having had to have direct experience to it. And I think for like female readers, like I think like some of us feel like a connection to that of sort of like, Oh, this is familiar in some sense. And then I think a lot of, I have a few guy friends who, um, I've read awesome novels and enjoy them. And I think it gives them a different perspective for how women experience sort of like romantic marriage uh, spaces, both in a historical sense, but also in a way that like resonates, like still resonates. And I think it's like a different perspective than. I think, a lot of guys experience because I think, um, I mean, Hannah, you and I were talking about like sort of how this is chick lit and like classically feminine literature, but in a way that's not trying to keep anyone out. I think like. um, one of the things I was thinking about while we were talking about James is that I think the other thing that I, I think is stylistically different between James and Austin is that. James is very much interested in craft for its own sake. Um, He wants the reader to sort of like enjoy his works and like appreciate for the craft. But I don't think that for James, the emphasis is on communicating with his reader and his audience. Whereas I think for Austin, that's that's a bigger piece of her sort of desire as an author and what makes her novels good, mm-hmm. is that she's trying to communicate.
3: And I think what makes Austin interesting, and actually, I think, tells us a lot about something, and I really want to dismiss this, but I'm never going to be able to dismiss this as a novel, Fifty Shades of Grey, or something like that. Like, we, we, can, we tend to think of, mm-hmm. and not, not us, but like a lot of people tend to think of like economics especially in the 19th, 18th century, being in the realm of men, especially if you look at like theories like Adam Smith or something and The Wealth of Nations. And you think of like Mm -hmm. romance and domesticity being in the realm of women. But Austen brings those two things together. And if you look at like contemporary romance novels... Like Fifty Shades of Grey. I hate myself for doing this. But that is also like a very economically concerned storyline. Like the fantasy of that, as many people have said, including, I think, uh, former guest on the show, Zoe Ekman, who um, said like studies, studied like romance in the 18th century, said that like one reason why Fifty Shades of Grey is so appealing is because there is a billionaire fantasy. It's not because Christian Grey is sexy. It's because she is broke. And he buys her things Mm -hmm. like new laptops. She graduates college and gets her dream job straight away, which as people uh, who are looking at graduation and this economy or have experienced graduation, this economy before, we all know that that is is the dream.
0: I totally agree there. Uh, yeah. also something that um uh, that Bridget was saying earlier is that um you know romantic love really only comes about when there's um when economic concerns don't have to be active concerns mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. and I think that's definitely part of the fantasy mm-hmm. um especially and and um I I would actually be I wish we had data on readership um from earlier on sorry for bringing in some digital humanities stuff um, why, why are you saying <laughs> like data yeah.
1: But date, it, would is my
0: really, faves. <laughs> it would be really interesting, I think, to see um if awesome popularity coincides with rises in inequality or let's say job precarity. Um because I could see how the fantasy of um being able to choose love without any economic constraints um is just more appealing at certain times.
1: Well it definitely I mean not I can't say much about like readerships, but I mean but, and like whether or not that increases. But I mean, I think this maybe also goes to why we still continue to relate this. Like she's not wrong. Like divorce rates are directly coordinated with economic instability. So like you are you are less likely to get divorced if you're economically stable, because the mo- like the most common thing that people mention in relationships that they fight over is money.
3: I mean, the couples who get married who are happy, even if they're not wealthy, like Edward and Eleanor at the Innocence and Sensibility, are economically stable and live within their means. Right.
1: right. Mm-hmm. It's like money can't buy happiness,
0: but it sure helps. But There have also been like demographic changes or uh, not just demographic, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, you know, economic stability in a marriage means something different today than it meant uh, in the 19th century because uh, we do have so much more women in the uh, Women in the workforce.
3: Um,
0: so, does that make sense? Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, and this is like why they like the adaptations, like the present day adaptations of Austin, say such different things, but still like keep the spirit of the novels because that was always in there. Did the zombie ones really?
1: Does
2: the zombie no, one no, keep no, the spirit I mean, of No, by modern
3: day adaptation, I mean like <laughs> he transported to the modern day. Okay, like, like okay, George I accept Jones's diary, which I had not watched until Josh made me because mm-hmm. he said I would get something out of it, which was true. <laughs> and did you? I, yeah. See, there we go. Um, but actually, I think Praying Persons Zombies is interesting because it actually shows us a sort of perspective <laughs> from the zombies' point of view uh, about. Like uh, racialization and classification that Austin likes to hand wave away. Also, it makes Darcy truly look like the biggest jerk in the world, which I think uh, Katya, you of all people would appreciate. No, no,
1: I I think that's true. Um, But then again, I also started a fight because I said Harry Potter was an asshole, so I just probably shouldn't talk anymore.
0: Um, (laughs) Can I uh, go back to something uh, Hannah said about Fifty Shades of Grey, because I've been also thinking about, um, you know, uh, maybe teaching this at some point. Um, the reason I started thinking about this was because there's a, a, an essay by Walter Ben Michaels on Fifty Shades of Grey that I actually really liked. I don't, don't always flash often and like um, what he says, but <laughs> that was a very good uh, piece on um, the foundational um role that the contract plays in 50 shades of rain mm. Yep, uh the that contract that is um that is never signed or actually i don't know what happens after the first book because i uh, i only read the first book after that um but uh he reads this together with like current working conditions and um you know, the the precarity of like the gig economy. And he has this uh, wonderful uh, sentence where he writes um, from the boss's perspective. However, the handcuffs that bind Anna, the protagonist in Fifty Shades of Grey, only as long as she wants to be bound and the image of her resistance as the expression of her desire are the fantasy that makes the free market seem truly free. What workers really want is to be fucked. On
1: that <laughs> note, uh, I believe that, per usual, we have solved absolutely nothing, other than that probably we need to have another Austin episode, um, especially one on games. because we
3: How how did we get from Austin? I know I did it, but how did we get from Austin to Fuji to of gray again? I forgot. I'm sorry.
0: It was just a beautiful sentence that I wanted to...
1: No, say. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's great. Um, I mean, also, when when do we ever have a linear pathway we on ever, this show? We never do. Um, we never do. So, as always, we have solved absolutely nothing. Um, I want to thank all of our guests for coming today. Does anyone have anything they would like
3: to plug, Hannah? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers, as usual. It's nonsense. I don't know why you would, but it's there. <laughs> Bridget, anything you would like to plug? You can follow me on Twitter at
2: bcdonnelly18. And you can see a picture of me wearing a
3: Regency-era dress at a Jane Austen Ball. Uh, can we can we go back to that real quick <laughs> and uh, <laughs> ask why were you at a Jane Austen Ball?
2: Well, UNC every summer hosts a Jane Austen summer program uh, where we read one of her novels together and have talks and a weekend of Jane Austen fun including a ball every and year And this is like not just for
3: yes. academics like people in the community come write- right No, it's for everybody yeah, we we need
1: to do an episode on LARPing, and we need to talk about historical like reenactments of fiction. Oh,
3: yeah. uh, for for people who don't know what LARPing is, what does that mean? Uh,
1: live action role play. If you do not know what LARPing is, I don't know why you are listening to this show because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, yeah, LARPing LARPing is uh, basically uh, Renaissance fairs are probably the most familiar thing to most people. Um, but it's the idea that you are role playing in like bodily. By like actually moving around and dressing as things, um, a fictional story or world. Uh,
3: Carolyn, uh, Carolyn, do you need to go to plug? No. <laughs>
1: Okay. <laughs> Carolyn is an enigma. Um, as always, you can follow me at just that on Instagram. It's mainly sewing and cats. Uh, so I don't know if that's really enjoyable. Um, if you would like to follow along with more of our yammerings, remember to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever fine podcasts are downloaded. And please leave us a review. Um, that actually really helps us bring new folks to the show. Um, and you can also check us out on our blog at voxpopcast.com. And joining the discussion, we have some new stuff up there. Um, and follow us on Facebook at VOPodcast. Am I forgetting anything? No. Instagram and Twitter and oh, did you yeah. think? Instagram and Twitter. Uh, did you think? And yeah. thanks as always. Uh, thanks to everyone for, to our panel for coming, uh, and thanks for listening. I'd also like to thank Mexican at Thoughtform Music for our theme music that is slowly building to an ever more epic uh, tones as we speak. And bye. Bye.
3: Thank you guys. You haven't said which book you want to be responsible for. Maybe persuasion, because I'm increasingly drawn to its elegiac tone. Don't think I'm doing a book club. You're doing it. Mansfield Park. Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Persuasion. Six people will each be responsible for one book. All Jane Austen, all the time. We could do worse. Reading Jane is a freaking minefield.